Welcome to the Books and Culture podcast with Books and Culture's editor, John Wilson, and I'm Stan Guthrie. And today, John will be doing episode two of Secrets of Book Reviewing. And you just told me that we've gotten a good response to the first one. So here's hoping that uh, the response is just as good for this one. Yeah, that title, Secrets of Book Reviewing, reminds me of some ads that I get for various books that are purporting to reveal some, <laughs> some secrets, you know, possibly having to do with alchemical mysteries or... Or how to get more for Social Security. Or. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I feel like we ought to work on that, Stan, and maybe we could figure out a little way to generate some income for books and culture where we could reveal the secrets of book reviewing. In this second episode, I want to talk about three books, each of which illustrates another secret, so to speak. And (laughs) and one of those is that in every publication that carries on the kind of conversations we do, that is, it could be a standalone book review, or it could be a magazine like First Things or Commonweal that does a lot of things but includes a section where they regularly talk about books, there are certain themes that recur in that publication so that over a period of time, you have a feeling that you're part of an ongoing conversation. And those are unpredictable to some extent. They're not all the same thing. Like if you think about what do you expect to find in first things? Well, some of it is predictable because They often will have conversations that have to do with matters of Catholic theology and that sort of thing. But they also will have certain other pet subjects, you might say, that Mm -hmm. recur. And that partly has to do with the writers who are in their stable. It partly has to do with the editors. Probably part of it is in the inexplicable providence of God. And the same is true of books and culture. And so one of the subjects that we've had several pieces about is Guatemala. In 2012, Rudy Nelson, he and his wife Shirley have spent a fair amount of time in Guatemala. He wrote a piece for us called Spiritual Warfare in Guatemala that Mm. reviewed a couple of books. And then in 2014, Rudy and his wife Shirley and the writer Paula Houston had a conversation because they had written two books. Rudy and Shirley wrote a novel called The Risk of Returning, and Paula wrote a novel called The Land Without Sin, both of which were set in Guatemala and which had some striking similarities, but also were different in some ways, too. And so you might say, well, what is it about Guatemala? What's the conversation about? Well, partly it has to do with the fact, as you know, that there's been a great deal of wanton killing there. So it's a sad story. It's a story that partly involves U.S. intervention in the politics of the country. It also involves the role of evangelicals Mm -hmm. in the politics of the country, sometimes in very unsavory ways. It also involves very active, not only Pentecostal or neo-Pentecostal, but particularly Pentecostal Christians in the cities of Guatemala, trying to improve conditions. And so it's an ongoing subject that we'll continue to return to. And 
One of the books that Rudy reviewed in that piece in 2012 was by a scholar named Kevin O'Neill, who has now written another book called Secure the Soul, Christian Piety and Gang Prevention in Guatemala. He's actually quite critical of the way that that plays out. And it'll be interesting to see what Rudy makes of this book. But I've asked him if he would review it for us and carry on that conversation so that not everyone who reads this piece will have read the earlier pieces, though when it appears, I'll find a way to draw attention to those earlier pieces so that some readers who may not have known about them will be directed there. But for those who have been with us for a while, the piece will be of interest in itself, but there'll be an added interest to it because it's an ongoing conversation. So the secret, I guess, for either a reader or a prospective reviewer is to know what a publication has been covering, what it likes to cover. And again, that's true of magazines of all types and all persuasions, so mm -hmm. that, for instance, the journal N Plus One, there are certain subjects that you're going to find again and again in that journal that you're not so likely to find in First Things. But there might be some that you would find in both, and there are certain subjects that you're going to find again and again in the London Review of Books, though you also find a lot of subjects there that you would find in the TLS. And, mm -hmm. and there's a fine line where, and this is subjective, are your readers going to feel like, oh no, another piece on South Africa? <laughs> Let's just take one subject that yeah. for some publications has been for reasons that are not exactly the same, but there's a parallel with what we were talking about with Guatemala. In other words, there's a cluster of realities in South Africa that have made it obviously a subject of ongoing interest. And for some publications, it's one that they'll return to again and again. Will readers feel like, even though this is important, I've heard enough about this? Or on the other hand, will they feel like this is something I really care about and I want to continue to hear about it? You say that it's subjective. So how do you navigate that line? There are no rules. Of course, if you hear from people, they don't always tell you. That's one way you can judge, though the responses you get from readers are not going to be all the same either. But you pay attention to the kind of responses you get. A lot of it, like so much in editing, boils down to instinct. Thank goodness. We need good editors, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, what's your next secret? Next one takes off from a book called the Invention of Fire, which is written by a scholar named Bruce Holsinger, who's a medievalist. And it's a sequel to his first novel, which was called A Burnable Book, and includes historical characters in England in the 14th century. Chaucer appeared in that earlier book, but particularly the poet John Gower, who's not as well known as Chaucer. This is an example of a certain kind of book that has become more popular in recent times, and that is fusing some of the conventions of the mystery with the historical novel. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not something that's just been done. It's been sure. done for quite a long time, and you and I have talked sometimes about the wonderful series by Ellis Peters on Brother Cadfill, which also was a BBC TV series. I think that part of the reason that this 
particular genre is popular is that it's pleasing to have this blending of conventions. That is, you know one set of rules, the set of rules that you're used to as a reader of mysteries or crime mm -hmm. fiction. Then there's another set of rules that you're accustomed to, and the rules are mostly implicit. A critic might do this, but no one sits down and makes a list of, well, these are the rules, like a contract sort of between writer and reader. Like, I as a writer promise to do certain things and not to do certain things. And then the reader says, all right, well, I'll sign on to that, you know. And, but implicitly, readers are very good at knowing what they can expect and what they want to sign on for. Umberto Eco's novel, The Name of the Rose, which was just a worldwide bestseller, was certainly one of the books that inspired a lot of writers to at least think about, could I do something like this? And some of the people who do it are not historians like Kolsinger is, right? Some of them come at it as Ellis Peters did, primarily from the standpoint of a fiction writer. Okay, mm -hmm. and this is something I can do. And then others are historians who decide to try their hand at fiction and infuse their telling of a particular time and the tensions of the time and the realities that are both different from and similar to our own time, the way that they might in a history class, but they're doing it in the form of fiction. And I know that from following Bruce Holsinger on Twitter that he's been interested for a long time in historical fiction as a way to engage the past. Of course, it can be very flawed. You have to take it for what it is. You have to recognize the ways in which it's stylized, but it can still be a very good way to engage the past. There are books that are a little bit to the side of this that might be similar, like the series on Cromwell that has been so mm -hmm. popular, starting with Wolf Hall. It's a trend that is interesting in itself, and then you take a particular book that exemplifies that. What's your last secret for today? Yeah. Well, the last one is a book by, I think you know Chris Castaldo. Oh, sure. And it's called Talking with Catholics About the Gospel, A Guide for Evangelicals. Here's a subject that there have been tons of books about, that is, evangelical-Catholic dialogue relations, differences between. It's a vast subject, and it's one that just in the last, let's say, 20 years has been particularly productive. So there you're faced with the question of so many books. Why pick one? <laughs> a lot of it is based on your personal experience. And so I've met Chris. I've talked with him on several occasions. He's written for us before. As you know, he's someone who was raised as a Catholic became evangelical. He's now an evangelical pastor. His own stance, which he summarizes in the book and returns to in the conclusion, is one of welcoming dialogue and yet also not losing sight of the differences. He is more conscious of focusing on the differences than I am. Not that I wouldn't agree with him that there are differences. And you and I have talked about our daughter Mary and our son-in-law John and our grandchildren who are Catholic and the fact that there are things that we see differently and yet what's far more important to me is what we share. And Chris would agree with that too, so it's just a matter of emphasis. Right. 
how did you choose to review or at least consider this book for review? It's the combination of my personal experience mm. with Chris and being impressed by the combination of theological rigor and depth. You might not know, if you just picked up this book and flipped through the pages, you can see it's a popular book. It's very much aimed at the general reader. You might not know at a first glance how deeply knowledgeable Chris is, and yet that informs his work. It mm -hmm. gives it a depth, mm -hmm. and then part of it is the spirit of it. As I say, he might want to make sure that we don't forget the differences a little bit more than I do, but after all, there are differences, let's mm -hmm. be honest. And so the spirit that he brings to the project is very important, too. For those reasons, it's something that I feel we do want to cover, and it, it might be a review in the print magazine. And of course, there are others that would be perfectly worthy to do. This particular one is one that we're going to cover. Summing up the secrets that we've talked about, we could certainly say, know thy editor, because a lot of this is very subjective. It's relational. It's experience-based. It's what the publication has done before, and that's a judgment call of the editor as well. So if you like the editor, you're going to like the publication, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, yeah, sure, there's some truth to that. It depends. I'm sure there are people who write for books and culture who, you know, they don't positively loathe me, but they, they don't. <laughs> I don't think that they all necessarily share my outlook or look at me as some kind of paragon. I'm sure that's not true. But I do think you're right that it's not just knowing the editor, but it's knowing the publication, because the publication has a life of its own. I mean, certainly the editor is important to it, but all the writers, and it transcends any one point of view. It has yes. an ongoing life, so to speak. And some of that, I wonder if it's true that sometimes, some of it the editor would be aware of, but some of it the reader might see in a way that the editor wouldn't be so able to see because you're very close to it if you're working on it all the time. But you as a reader might be sensitive to some things that the editor might not be so sharply aware of. Just to take a very crude point that you and I have talked about a few times over the years is that I'm always surprised when I hear from someone who's pitching something to us that just is so obviously not something that we'd be likely to do because there's so many things that we could do yeah. <laughs> you know it seems odd to me like why wouldn't you acquaint yourself with the publication better because it's hard enough to get somebody when you're just approaching them out of the blue and saying hey i'd like to write something for you it's hard enough to get them to pay attention to you and actually consider doing that but if you evince a lack of knowledge of the publication you're wanting to write for that just seems odd one of the things i find interesting is that readers and potential writers have so many more opportunities now to actually get to know an editor than they have in the past. I mean, you're on Twitter, you have these podcasts, you're out and about talking about what you do. There's really no excuse for someone not knowing what's important Well, and it's not just knowing the editor, it's just knowing the publication. Yeah. It's being familiar with it. It's reading a number of issues, and I mean, that's not hard to do, and <laughs> If you're thinking of yeah. writing for a, a publication. But that doesn't Please. count as a secret. <laughs> That's too for, obvious. <laughs> it does for some people, though, John. All right. Thanks very much. All right, we'll thanks, talk again Dan. about this another time.